Good morning. You can find your seats. Good morning. Just just a brief announcement before we get started. Don't make me get the whistle out. Okay, guys, just a brief announcement before we get started. I know uh, as, you know, church is sort of, you know, full again, amen, um, you may have a hard time finding parking. Uh, there really shouldn't be any reason, but there's street parking. There's certainly the lot. If the lot fills up and you're coming in, you know, kind of late, you do have the option of double parking so you can get into service. And then all we ask is don't forget you double park because you won't want your brother or your sister to have malice in their hearts. So anyway, that's just a a little announcement to let you know. We don't want you to miss out on service or have to park, you know, eight blocks away. So that's one of the things I wanted to mention. But with that, let's get started this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. You are good to us. Again, we thank you for yesterday's picnic and a wonderful time together as a family in you, all of us together enjoying the time. Uh, We don't take it for granted that you blessed yesterday and our and our fellowship, and all that we were able to experience together. But now we ask, Lord, as we have our children next door being cared for and ministered to, and we've opened up our nursery again today. Lord, we're so happy after over a year, the nursery's open again. And Lord God, we thank you for our children's ministry. Uh, and, And all we can say is we want you to bless them as much as you bless us today. And we pray that you'd bless us as we study your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, this morning we are in Acts chapter 6. You can turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to give you sort of the the, the overview of what happened here, and then we're going to go back over it. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 for now. Acts chapter 6. We read in verse 1 that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The first thing we realize here is that the church continued to grow rapidly. We're told right up front, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. I want to remind you that this was a time of great persecution. We looked at our study last week where we saw the apostles were were flogged. They were taken into custody. They were arrested. So after the persecution, there is this outpouring of God's grace in a way where many are coming to faith. So before we even go any further in our study, I want you to understand what I personally believe is happening in our world today. 
Let's, let's go a step closer. In our culture today, in our country today, in our nation, I believe the persecution will increase. We see it already. But I also believe that God will pour out his spirit on his church and we will be able to describe these as the days when the number of disciples were increasing. Amen? See, we want the revival. We want the awakening. But we don't want the persecution that inevitably must happen if God is going to do the work he's called us to do. I know it's hard. We would rather have this kumbaya world where everyone loves us and everyone just goes to church. But guys, we had that world. Was it all that good? During the years where the church was not being persecuted and maligned and criticized and canceled and silenced in our country, abortion was made legal. Prayer in the schools was outlawed. Transgender became the norm, apparently, in some parts of our country, in some parts of the world. Gender confusion took over. Homosexuality thrived. All of this took place when the church was not being maligned or persecuted. Why do I say that? We would love to see people who are caught up in those sins come and be members of the body of Christ as they repent of their sins and come to Jesus. This isn't about maligning others. This is about understanding that when the church wasn't being persecuted in our culture, all of these things happened on our watch. Immorality flourished. Children were abused. Think of all the things that have taken place, and then ask yourself, do you really want to continue in that kind of world or in that kind of church? Well, God is answering our prayers. Because we've prayed for revival, we've prayed for an awakening, and the persecution must come first, the maligning must come first, for Jesus said, they will say all manner of evil against you. And while he didn't speak directly about social media, if he had, he would have said, and you'll be canceled and deplatformed and silenced throughout the world. So what we see happening in our world today isn't a good thing. No, not at all. It's not a good thing. It's a God thing. It's a God thing. So as we go through the studies in the book of Acts, the backdrop is that God allowed persecution, but he worked through that persecution. We're going to see it's going to get a lot worse when we get to chapters, uh, the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 and even into chapter 8. But as it became more difficult to be a Christian in the first century, the church continued to grow and grow and grow. The number of disciples was increasing. Now, it's important to go back to chapter 4 for a minute. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to remind you that the church in Jerusalem was distributing food to the poor and to the needy among them. The church fellowship, we were told, shared everything that they had with one another. And occasionally, those that owned property sold it and gave the money to the apostles to provide for the needy. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. They were a really solid church. They were being persecuted, but this is the important thing to remember. They were powerful. They were making an impact in their world. Well, the church experienced a problem. Here's the thing about ministry, and and, and I've been involved in ministry over 30 years, maybe 35 years now, and I'll tell you something. Here's what I do know. Problems are a way of life, especially in ministry and in the church. Problems are just a way of life. 
If anyone gets through a week without having one problem, call me and let me know, because I don't know anyone that gets through a whole week without some sort of problem they have to deal with at work, at home, some kind of home repair, some spiritual attack. But the church had experienced a problem with the daily distribution of food to their widows. And in ministry, it's always something like that. You know, a a spirit-filled ministry oftentimes experiences problems, and they have to do with mechanics or methodology or some type of distribution of some, some, some minor thing, which always ends up being a big problem. I don't know why, but these mechanics of ministry always seem to be a problem. Projects we're doing, things we're getting involved. Someone always seems to get offended. Something always goes south. I don't know why. It just seems that that's the case. That was true in the first century, in the early church. See, the problem, and it's a good problem to have, the problem was the church was growing. You ever heard of growing pains? Not the TV show. Growing pains. As we grow, we experience our bones lengthen, our muscles stretch, and we experience a degree of Pain. Now, it's not a severe pain generally, but it's still a pain that is necessary as we grow as human beings. Well, the church was growing, and, in, and the number of disciples was increasing rapidly. And one of the most dangerous moments in a ministry is when the church begins to grow in numbers, because all kinds of problems come to the surface, as they should. You know, if one person has a problem and you have 100 people in the church, and now you have 500 people in the church, statistically now you've got five people that probably have a problem. So problems grow as the church grows. That's just normal and natural. This is one of the good problems to have in a church, isn't it? As we grow, oh, pastor, I'd come to church, but there's no parking. Good problem to have, right? Well, it's still a problem. How do we address it? I shared with you before. We, we make accommodation. Oh, pastor, you know, there's so many kids in the toddlers. We need more volunteers. Good problem. Still a problem that needs to be solved. So it's, it's important to realize that's a dangerous moment in a ministry if you don't address it. So today, we're going to be talking about mostly how leaders and servant leaders in the church address problems. Because that's exactly what we've seen happened in this church. There's a problem. Is it a huge problem? Nope. It could have become one, and I'm going to tell you why. Because underlying every surface problem that might have to do with the mechanics of ministry, that may have to do with procedures and workflows, there is a real significant problem brewing. That is, problems don't just happen on the surface. There are underlying issues. Just like growing pains have to do with the growth of a body— Deep down inside the core of a church, there may be something that needs to be addressed and and dealt with, and it may just be the symptoms of that problem that you're experiencing. In this case, the symptom was that people were complaining. The cause was way deeper. Something that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, began to address in the church such that over the next few decades... God worked in the church to solve that problem, that division, as we'll see. You see, it often demands, when, when, when more people come into a church, it often demands that too few leaders do much more than they were already doing before. And so things get overlooked. People get neglected, unfortunately. 
Things happen that you don't intend to happen. Someone doesn't get greeted in the morning or someone walks in the back door and no one introduces themselves. Why? Not because we're not trying to get to everyone, but because, you know what? As you grow as a church, these are the kinds of symptoms that will appear. They're not the real root cause of the problem. They're just a symptom. And the problem isn't that the church is growing, as we'll see. That wasn't the problem. And and these things that were happening, well, they had to be addressed. As I said, as a church grows, it often demands that too few leaders do much more than they were already doing before. So the first problem that we see at the root cause, they needed more servant leaders. They needed more servant leaders. I've always said that for, a, for every 10 people, there should be one person in leadership. So let's say that you have a church of 100 people. That means you need to have a leadership team of 10. I'm talking about senior leadership. I'm not just talking about servant leaders, because certainly you need more than that. So if you have 100 people, you need 10. If you have 1,000 people, how many do you need? 100. I don't know too many churches of 1,000 people that have 100 people on their senior staff. And yet, I would say that that's exactly what you need. Volunteers, a mixture of volunteers, part-timers, full-timers, but that's what you need if you're going to properly meet the needs through relationship of individuals who come into the ministry and come to the church. I've always believed that. That's a number we, we work with. It helps us to understand whether we have enough leaders. Listen, people, more people means more needs and potentially more problems to solve. So that's the first problem that was emerging. There weren't enough people to lead and to serve. And that's what it means to lead, to serve. Now, also, there was another problem brewing that they were probably aware of, but people didn't really want to talk about. It was that the church was divided between Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews. Now, this is interesting because this isn't like a Jewish Gentile division. This is a Grecian Hebrew division. Notice it says there that as the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, remember, they're, they're ministering. They have like a, a, a street ministry, if you will, or food pantry. And they're ministering to widows and others in need. Widows were the most needy in that culture at that time. So the Grecian Jews are saying, oh, wait a minute. When I look at the line, the, the Hebraic widows are going home with their needs met. But our Grecian widows, the Jewish people who were from a Grecian culture, they're being neglected. That was their complaint. And you might say, well, people always complain. No, it was a legitimate complaint, as we'll see. See, unfortunately, as much as we like, I do not believe, I'm going to say this out loud, I do not believe that we live in a culture that is, or a country that is systematically racist. I am not a racist. Being white doesn't make me a racist. Being black doesn't make you a racist. Being Asian doesn't make you a racist. Being Hispanic doesn't make you a racist. Being evil makes you a racist. Being wicked in your heart and hating others, that makes you a racist. Don't judge me by the color of my skin and call me a racist, and I won't judge you by the color of your skin or your ethnic background and call you one. See, there was a time where we recognized that the character of a person was what was important, not the color of the skin. Instead, we've allowed the culture to redefine us again, going back to the 60s now, redefine us by our skin color. Do you think that's the devil? Can I hear an amen? It's a devil. We're finally beginning to make gains. 
And, and much as I didn't support President Obama, I was happy that we had a person of color in the White House. I'm not going to lie. But since that time, rather than making gains in our country, we've gone backwards. And oh, do we desperately need someone like a Martin Luther King to lead us out of it. This wasn't so much racism, but it was discrimination. There were elements of it being racist, but it actually had more to do with religious discrimination. Let me explain. As we learned, the church was divided. The fact that they even recognized Grecian Jews versus Hebraic Jews meant that there was a problem at the core. And the symptom of that problem was that people were getting neglected. The other problem of of more leaders was a separate problem. They needed more leaders. But this issue was happening because there weren't enough leaders to make sure it didn't happen. However, the real problem when we get down to the kernel of it is this. There were people that looked at those that were different than them and didn't treat them the same as others. Again, I'm not going to call it racism because they were all Jews, but let me explain. See, the Grecian Jews, they spoke Greek. The Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic. So they spoke a different language, which automatically separates people. Would you agree? I mean, if you can't communicate with someone, it makes it difficult. When I started going into Central America and to Latin America on missions trips, I became keenly aware back in 2004 that as long as I only spoke English, I was not going to be able to properly minister to the people in that country, in those countries. So it was very difficult because, gosh, I was already in my 40s. So learning another language, one that I tried in high school to learn for two and a half years, and uh, I, I learned a few words, got in trouble for not bringing in my homework, liked my Spanish teacher, but that's another story. All I can tell you is that, you know, that's all I remember about Spanish in high school. So I had to start to learn the language. So in about, gosh, it was about 2005, 2006, when the Lord laid it on my heart to learn. And for the next six years, for three years formally with, with an you know, my interpreter who became my Spanish teacher and another three years practicing on my own till I be, until I became fluent. But the reason I did it was not because I was looking for extra work or because I had this personal goal to learn Spanish. It was because God laid it on my heart. He actually spoke through a, a, a pair of pastors in Guatemala who came up to me through my interpreter and told me that the Lord told them that I needed to learn to speak Spanish. Now, the first one I dismissed because, that's, you know, people always have a word for you, especially in Latin America. You know, they come they had a word for you. One lady come up, and, and, and she was so sweet. She came up and said she had a dream. And in the dream, I had a brown suit on. I knew right there she was a false prophet. <laughs> I don't wear brown suits. But I was wearing a brown suit in her dream, and I was sitting at a desk writing a book. And then I knew for sure she was not telling me something from God because I feel no inclination to write a book. So a lot of times you just sort of dismiss these things. But the first pastor comes up and tells me this, and I was like, okay. Second pastor comes up, tells me the exact same thing. And I said, I better not wait for a third. So I made a commitment, and I did what the Lord called me to do. But I didn't do it because I wanted to speak Spanish. I did it because, because I wanted to eliminate the distinction between me, myself, and them. I, I wanted to get closer to them so that there wouldn't be a hindrance to me ministering to them. 
So the problem in the early church, it wasn't one of their own creating or one of their own doing. In fact, what it was is that the Grecian Jews spoke Greek and the Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic. But it went a little further than that. Because the Grecian Jews were culturally accepted among the Greeks, and they often included Gentile converts to Judaism, and that's where the racism came in. When there were Gentile converts to Judaism, oftentimes the Hebraic Jews looked at them differently. They considered them something other than Jews, something less, second class, if you will. These Hebraic Jews were culturally separate from the Greeks and all other Gentiles, so they would tolerate them. The Hebraic Jews also believed that the Grecian Jews were unspiritual, that they were sellouts to Greek culture because they spoke Greek. And so this was the problem. This was the real problem in the church that God was exposing through these circumstances. The symptoms revealed that there was a problem that could potentially destroy the church. So that's why you don't dismiss little problems. They could be symptoms of a much deeper problem. Just like when you go to the doctor and you say, you know, doctor, when I move my arm, it hurts. You know, you know the joke, right? Well, then don't move your arm. No, go get a, get a, 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 maybe a scan or something. Find out what's causing the pain. It could be something serious. Could be not something serious. But you need to find out. So the Grecian Jews, they looked at the Hebraic Jews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. So there was this divide in the church, and the fact that these distinctions even existed in the church reveals the seriousness of the problem. This was a potential problem that could destroy the church. So the Grecian Jews complained. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. But probably the worst thing you can do is not say something when something needs to be said. I know as we get older, that's not a problem, right? I'm in my 50s now, and that's not a problem anymore. Used to be. When I was in my 30s, you know, maybe I should say something. Maybe I shouldn't say something. You know, it's more of the issue for me now. But, you know, Grecian Jews complained that the Hebraic Jews were neglecting their widows. And at first when I read this, I thought, ah, they're probably just complaining about nothing. No, they were actually right. There was a problem. And the Hebraic Jews were responsible for the daily distribution of food within the church. So that was an issue. And the Grecian Jews observed that their poor and needy were being discriminated against. And I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. See, the Hebraic Jews clearly overlooked the Grecian widows, whether it was intentional or not. There is such a thing as unintentional discrimination that you may not be aware of. But it doesn't come with your skin color or your culture. It comes with your heart. See, I agree that there are some people who don't even realize they're racist. I I agree with that statement. But it's not a systematic thing. It's a personal thing. There are people that discriminate against others, and they don't even realize in their hearts that that's the way they feel. God has to reveal that to them, and then real change can come. Amen? And let me be the first to say, it needs to come. Nobody should feel this way in their heart toward another group of people. And if you do and you're aware of it, maybe because of the way you were raised, maybe because of experiences you've had, confess it to God and ask him to take it away. There's no room for this kind of discrimination or any form of racism in our country, let alone our church. Amen? And I'm glad to say, if you look around, you'll see that we're not a homogenous group. And I'm glad about that. That is, we're not all the same. We're different. We celebrate our diversity. We celebrate our differences, but we don't discriminate. 
They were actually discriminating. And again, I can't say whether it was intentional or not, but the facts revealed there was a problem. The Grecian Jews accused the Hebraic Jews of showing favoritism toward their own widows. It's not hard to imagine that being true. Have you ever showed favoritism? Of course you have. Anytime you choose between going to one barbecue or the other, you have to make a choice, right? And by the way, you need to discriminate in making decisions. Like, for example, you need to discriminate when you're hiring a babysitter. Would you agree? Oh, well, you know, I want to be an equal opportunity. No, 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 no. When it comes to your kids, you discriminate in a good way. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not based on prejudice. It's based on character. But you still need to discriminate. So there is a time to be discriminating. But as we look at this, we realize that favoritism comes about the result of relationship oftentimes. So you like somebody. And there are people you love. There are people you like. There are people that you love that you don't like. And there are people that you like that you don't love. But when you show favoritism, what you're saying out loud, sort of by your actions, is, oh, I like him, I like her. And in some ways, that's okay. In some ways. It's never okay in the church. That is, it's never okay when it comes to ministry. You know what? Give that guy two bags of rice. I like him. It's not okay. It's just not okay. It may seem nice, but it's not right. You know what? Don't worry about that guy. He's kind of nasty. I don't care if he leaves the church. What would make you say something like that, let alone think something like that? Like, really? But that's probably what was happening. It doesn't surprise me at all. I'm glad to say I don't see that here, but still, it can happen, right, in our hearts if we're not careful. So the division had the potential of creating serious problems within the early church. It's been said that if you get two Christians together... You have a church. But if you get a third, you have the potential for a split. Because that's just the way we are. But remember, as as regards to complaining, there are some pastors who will say, I don't want anybody complaining. Don't come to me with your complaints. Well, that would be a big mistake. (laughs) There are some people that don't complain because, oh, the pastor, you know, he's not going to receive it. Listen, I'm not customer service at Bloomingdale's, but I will receive your complaints. I will. I want to hear them. You don't have to just complain to me. You can also complain to the other leaders, by the way. Let's be an equal opportunity uh, leadership team here. But, but seriously, we want to hear if there's something we can do better and you have a constructive criticism. By the way, that's how a lot of things have happened here at this church, through constructive criticism. I'm all for it. May we never not say what needs to be said in this church. But here's what I do know. When someone complains, they're sharing with you their unhappiness. They want you to know they're unhappy about something. So why would you stifle that? Help them. Solve the problem. And I've learned this. You you know what a canary in a coal mine is, right? They used to put the little canaries in, before they had high-tech sensors, in a coal mine. I believe it was in England. They would put these little birds inside these cages. And because birds are very, very sensitive to toxic fumes, in fact, if you have one of those nonstick pans and you burn it and you have a bird, the bird probably won't survive. You'll be fine, but the bird won't survive. They used to put these little canaries in cages, and the minute the methane gas would come in, they, they had little bells on the cages, and the canaries would hit the bottom of the cage, and they knew to get out. You know something? We need canaries in the church. 
We need those that are so sensitive to potential problems that we hear about it first. Is that okay to say? Listen, the Lord will often use the neediest people in the church to identify its problems. And I'm okay with that. I want to identify every problem so we can solve them. And there we need your help. Constructively bringing things to the surface that need to be addressed. Now, the leadership of the Hebraic Jews was ultimately responsible for this division in the church because they had the responsibility. Now, sometimes, I'm going to say this, sometimes, I'm going to say sometimes those in authority over the church are the problem in the church because they won't receive complaints, because they won't take suggestions, because they won't listen, or because they're doing things that are inappropriate like the leaders that were serving at this point were doing. Sometimes, unfortunately, those in authority, our leaders in the church, our servant leaders, are the problem in the church. Not always, but sometimes they are. We need to be open to that idea. You may be the problem that needs to be solved. That is, you need to correct your behavior, your tone. You may need to correct your actions. You need to be open to constructive criticism. And it doesn't matter whether you're the pastor of the church or on the nursery team. You need to be able to receive that without getting offended. Is that okay to say? I hope so. Abraham Lincoln said, Nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. What you'll find out is as soon as someone has authority, their character is challenged. And usually we fail. Well, what are the apostles going to do? Are they going to get together and decide, we don't need to listen to these people, they're always complaining? Or did they address the problem? Well, they addressed the problem, and it was a growing problem. It was a problem of division. You've heard me say this, it's a little math thing. The Lord adds to the church, he subtracts from the church, he multiplies the church, but he never divides the church. Know this, he never divides the church. That is, schisms, factions, divisions. Read 1 Corinthians if you disagree. So here's what we learn in verses 2 through 4. We read it already. So the 12, these are the apostles. They're leading the church. The 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait upon tables. Brothers, choose seven men among you, from among you, who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. So they're going to solve the problem, but isn't it interesting the way that they choose to solve it? First of all, let's point this out. It needs to be said, they did not ignore the problem. Instead, they addressed it immediately. And they brought together all of those individuals that were affected by the problem, like a town hall. Bring together all those that are affected by the problem when you have to solve one. And they facilitated open communication between the affected parties. Too often, people don't talk. Sometimes just getting everybody in a room, you can solve the problem. Listen, only half the problem is what's been said. The other half of the problem is what hasn't been said. So let's communicate. Communication is nearly always the answer to healing division in the church. And isn't it interesting, when we deal with division, usually communication shuts down. There's a communication breakdown. So opening communication up again will oftentimes, in and of itself, solve the problem. And in this case, it facilitated solving the problem. 
They were sure, these men, these apostles, it's not that they don't want to wait on tables, but they were sure of their calling as leaders within the church. They knew what God had called them to do. The Lord had called them to the ministry of teaching and preaching the word of God. And they were unwilling to neglect their calling to do something that the Lord had not called them to do. Now, oftentimes people receive their calling because someone calls them and asks them to do something. Someone calls. Oh, this needs to get done. And someone just says, oh, I guess that's my calling. Let me say something to you. And this is, I want to be very clear to all of our pastors, all of our leaders, all of our servant leaders in the church. When it's you they're calling, know you're calling. When it's you they're calling, know you're calling. What has God called you to do? If God hasn't called you to work in the Sunday school, please don't. If God hasn't called you to do operations and set up and break down and clean up, don't. If God hasn't called you to be on the worship team, please don't. You need to know what God has called you to do. The Holy Spirit is in charge of raising up servant leaders in the church. So he's going to lay it upon your heart to meet a need. Just because you hear a need doesn't mean you should meet it. That's true for leaders. It's true for all of us. So when it's you they're calling, no, you're calling. Never assume that you need to solve every problem yourself. This is certainly true for me. As the pastor, I I can't. And I shouldn't try. Can you imagine? Sorry, guys. I was going to share with you from Acts chapter 6 today. But I was so busy doing everything that needed to be done in ministry that I have nothing to share with you today. You'd be pretty bummed. I'd be pretty disappointed if I were you. You see, you need to know what you're called to do. And don't assume that you need to solve every problem yourself. By the way, when you do that, you discourage other people from serving. Oh, that's okay. I got it. That's okay. I got it. Michelle will tell you, her dad, when we used to do landscaping projects, he would grab the shovel and the pickaxe and he'd go out into the garden and you'd go with him and you're like, oh, Alvito, just show me how to plant this tree. I show you. And he grabbed the pickaxe and the shovel. I show you. I show you. Three hours later, he did all the work. And he showed you. But you know, the good thing is now I know how to do it. But I used to feel bad. He's, he was older, and, and, but he would not let you get in there to do it. I, just, he, I think he really enjoyed it so much that that's what he wanted to do. But here's the thing. Understand, we can show people what to do, but at a certain point, <laughs> we need to let go. And believe me, others aren't going to do it the way you did it. And you got to be okay with that. If they're called to do it, then that's the way God is calling them to do it. I was a worship leader for nearly 20 years when Pastor Russ was called to be the worship leader. And before that, Pastor Chris, uh, I needed to let them do what God had called them to do the way he called them to do it. And that's just the way it needs to be. So don't try to solve every problem yourself. Don't do everything. No, you'll only discourage others from serving. They were willing. These apostles were willing to get out of the way and allow the Lord to meet the needs of the church. Now, this times out very well because a lot of our leaders, servant leaders here, have told me, you know, now that COVID's behind us and we're moving forward and people are coming back and, you know, the parking lot's full and the Sunday school's full and we're excited, that's great. Guess what? Just like this church, we, having too few leaders, do even more work. It's not a problem right now, but it will be if we're not careful. So I'm just going to lay it out there. I've already made it clear that I'm not encouraging anybody to do anything they're not called to do. So now I feel comfortable saying this. If you're called to serve 
in the projection ministry, which is how we're able to read the words on the screen? Let us know. Lorianne shared with me recently, we would love to have a couple people jump on and be trained to do sound. Juan and Lorianne do a great job, but there's two of them. I'm their backup. So we need more people to do that. And we'll train you. You'll apprentice with them. You'll learn how to use the system. We always love to have people in Sunday school. We're pretty much fully stepped, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to need more people. Sometimes someone can't make it. Having floaters is really important. And as we expand the ministry, and as the kids get older, we're going to need the, the preteens and the junior high. And so let me tell you this, we're, we're going to need more servants. And as we grow as a ministry, we're going to need more people to do operations, set up, clean up. You see us cleaning and taking garbage. A lot of times those are the leaders and the pastors doing that. And that's fine. I do it. Jim does it. Sal does it. We all do it. That's fine. But let me tell you something. It wouldn't even be a bad thing to have more people. So this isn't a guilt trip. I love being able to share this in this context, but we definitely have room for more people to jump on board. So here's what you need to do. Here's your homework. Go home and say, Lord, what will you have me to do? Here I am. Send me. Is there some way that you would like for me to serve once a, once a month in the Sunday school, once a month on operations or in, or in sound or, or projection ministry? Or, and if I'm leaving any ministry out, I'm sorry, but there are lots of opportunities here to serve. Lots of them clean up, set up. Set up is, we could definitely use the help there. So all of this I say to you as, wow, we have a wonderful opportunity, but it could become a problem if we don't respond to the Spirit's leading. That's all I'm saying. So pray, okay? Is that all right? Amen? So pray. Now, having said all that, these guys were willing to get out of the way and allow the Lord to meet the needs of the church. That's what we're doing. They directed those individuals affected by the problem to solve the problem. So if you come to me and you say, oh, Pastor, you know it would be great? We had somebody in the parking lot directing traffic. Guess what you're doing next week? See, I figure God revealed it to you. He gave you a word. He's, he's going he's to give you the calling to do that job. I'm just using that as an example. I don't think we need that right now. I'm just saying, let's say we did. Like in the snow, when the snow comes and we have to park people, it gets a little crazy. We sometimes need that. But to just understand that I'm not discouraging you from, you know, sort of revealing a problem, but know that you're probably the one that's going to help solve it. Help solve it. You're not going to solve it yourself. We've already established that. So this is what they did. These very wise apostles filled with the spirit directed the individuals affected by the problem to solve the problem. But notice what they did, and I think this is so important. It's caught up in one word. Brothers. Verse 3. Brothers. Brothers. What does that mean? Brothers. Choose seven men from among you. Now, why is that important? Because the apostles, they acknowledge their brothers as fellow disciples and capable co-workers, co-laborers. See, when you look at things like, oh, we're the leaders and you just come to church, then there's a problem there. They didn't look at people that way. They said brothers. They were in this situation that God had blessed them in such a way that they needed help, but they acknowledged that they had the help. They just needed to encourage them. So they challenged those who were disgruntled to actively participate in the problem-solving process. Those that were disgruntled were actively to participate in the problem-solving process. And so they delegated to them the authority necessary to effectively solve the problem. They didn't solve it for them. If a little kid comes to you, this happened to me the other day, hands you a Rubik's Cube and says, can you do it? I can tell you confidently I cannot. I've never been good. I don't know why. I just could never do those things. So I was messing around with a little one that my wife carries around in her purse for when we spend time with the kids. I'm like, this ain't happening. 
So what we need to do is take that Rubik's Cube and hand it back and say, no, you do it. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're called to do. Brothers, brothers, you solve the problem. So they challenged them, but they also delegated to them the authority necessary to effectively solve the problem. Listen, listen, this is a great quote. Authority is like money. Most men handle it well until it's time to give it away. We have to give the authority to others. There are no one-man shows in ministry unless you're serving yourself. So they instructed those individuals as well. They didn't just direct them. They instructed them. Look at the latter part of verse 3. It says, Choose seven men from among you, known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. They gave them some guidance. You don't just say, okay, here you go. No, they guided them. Instructed the individuals responsible for solving the problem in order to ensure their success. Whenever you delegate authority and the responsibility that goes with it, you have to set people up for success, not for failure. That means you give them everything they need to be successful. Guidance if necessary, freedom if necessary. They directed them to choose seven men from among themselves. Notice, from among themselves to lead this ministry. And I'll always say it, look to those immediately affected to effect produce, uh, productive, to, excuse me, look to those immediately affected to effect productive and effective change. That's a tongue twister. Look to those immediately affected to effect productive and effective change. And that's what they did. So, if you bring someone from outside the church, do you solve the problem? See, so many times a church has a problem, they bring in a new pastor. And you're only going to succeed in bringing in new problems. You have to, again, look to those immediately affected to affect productive and effective change. That's why we don't recruit from outside the ministry. They should be right here. If this is God's church, then everything we need and all those that we need to serve are here. Now, they directed them to look for men that were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Listen, being full of the Holy Spirit is essential for leadership in the church. If you're not full of the Holy Spirit, you can't lead in the church. That's, that's the prerequisite. That is you, the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you can't do what God is calling you to do unless it's the Holy Spirit doing it. Church leadership is reserved for those who have proven that they not only are full of the Holy Spirit, but have the gift of wisdom. Wisdom. That's a leadership gift. It's essential. And so you may say, well, pastor, I'd like to lead this ministry. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, forget about it. That's why unbelievers can never be leaders in the church. But if you don't have wisdom, then you're not equipped to ask God for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, what does James tell us? If anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God who will give to all men generously, without measure, liberally. Basically, if you don't have wisdom, ask God, will give it to you. Amen? So you need wisdom, you need the Holy Spirit. So you need to be saved and you need to be equipped. And these leaders also recognized that they needed to appoint additional leaders within the church. So many times a pastor is loath to do that. We have, I think well, we're up to five pastors now in the church. I think we're at five. I'm losing count. But we'll probably soon have more. That's just what needs to happen in a church that's growing. It says there, they said in the latter part of verse 3, we will turn this responsibility over to them. I love that. It says it all. They accepted the reality that they couldn't do everything themselves in a growing church. They were committed to delegating both the responsibility and the authority necessary to lead. Authority comes with responsibility, but responsibility always demands it. It always demands authority. You can't have responsibility without having 
the requisite or prerequisite authority. Now, responsibility is the most obvious sign that you should be in a position of authority. As if you're doing the job, you should be recognized as leading because you're a servant leader. Little quick story, I'll tell it quick. There was a a custodian when I was going to uh, elementary school, uh, K through four in East Rutherford. It was a man, he was a custodian, and I was, I was fascinated with him because most of the teachers were, were women. There was a principal who was a man, but most of the teachers were women, and this was Mr. Marinaro, great name. He owned a bakery, owned Mr. Marinaro, well, not Mr. Marinaro's bakery, Marinaro's bakery, and Mr. Marinaro was in there. I remember the first time I went in the bakery, I said, Mr. Marinaro's in Marinaro's bakery, why? Because I knew him as the custodian in the school, but you know why I was fascinated? Not just because he was a man. He had more keys on his belt than I had ever seen in my entire life. Mr. Marinaro had a lot of keys. You know something? Anytime anyone had a problem, a question, needed something done, guess who they called? And it wasn't for him to bake bread. Mr. Marinaro. I've learned that... If you're entrusted with the church keys, you'll probably be called to open the doors for everyone. That's just what happens. So responsibility and authority, they go hand in hand. Authority also means that it's often better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Sometimes you just need to do what needs to be done. If you're that person that needs to make the decision, make the decision. Not everybody's going to like it. But if you're the person that's called to make it, make it with God's wisdom and being full of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So what I love, though, that leads to this in verse 4, and, we, and, and we'll, we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That, that's really great because they continued to serve in the way that the Lord had called them to serve within the church. Many times people attend the church and they complain about the pastor's teaching. They're like, well, you know, I think the pastor could put in a little bit more time into his studies and, you know, and, and they don't stop to think, maybe if you helped out, he'd have more time to put into his studies, right? Think about it. Think all the way through. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. The Lord had called these men to the ministry of praying for his direction and the needs of others. And the Lord had called them to the ministry of teaching and preaching the word of God. And they knew that. They weren't above serving at tables, but they knew what they were called to do. So, and we'll close it up here. The disciples solved the problem of division within the early church, not the apostles. The disciples, they solved it. Look at verses 5 and 6. This proposal, and that's exactly what it was, pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We'll get to that in just a minute. Both the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews approved of the apostles' proposal. Now, the apostles had provided the church with a proposal, not a dictate. A proposal, not a dictate. We are very familiar in our culture today with the difference between a suggestion and a mandate. There is a significant difference between a suggestion and a mandate. The primary difference between a suggestion and a mandate is the amount of thinking you're asking someone to do. A suggestion requires someone engages their brain. A mandate tells them to wear a mask in the car while they're driving down Route 80. Or at Brookdale Park. 
Think. 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 Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> Think. Okay. Now, this was a wise decision because it made perfect sense and it was practical because it could easily be impl- implemented. So they gave them a really good suggestion. They said, solve the problem. Here's what you need to do. You guys have the authority. Make the decision. They did. And notice they chose mostly Greece and Jews. And they even, they even chose a Gentile convert. You could see the wisdom in that, right? They recognized Stephen in particular as a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We'll see more of him later on. And the other six, including Philip, who we'll study about, they were all men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And Nicholas was a Gentile convert from Antioch, where the Gentile church would eventually be located. So we'll see that as we get to later chapters, chapter 12 as well, or chapter 11 and 12. These men would have been most sympathetic to the problem that needed to be solved. Would you agree? They would also have been well-received by the people that identified the problem. You see the wisdom in this? God's wisdom? So they presented these seven men to the apostles. What did they do? Put them through FBI background checks? No. They immediately appointed them as servant leaders, and the apostles approved of these men and openly supported the decision of the disciples who made it. This is great leadership stuff, guys. They trusted in the disciples' leadership and the Lord's sovereignty over all the church. As the scripture says, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In Proverbs 16, 33. You got to let go. You got to let others make decisions. Man can only recognize what God has already ordained. So if God raises you up, all I can do is recognize that God has raised you up. I can't really raise you up. God has to do that work. None of us can do that work. Only God, the Spirit. So they publicly confirmed through prayer and the laying on of hands that the Lord had chosen them. Notice it says there, back in our text, what they did. It says, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. They agreed. They supported the decision. They didn't argue with it. Now, what I love about this particular portion of Scripture is it teaches me so much about good leadership, good servant leadership. The Lord clearly used a problem in the church to raise up more leaders in the church. That's a good thing. God uses the need for leadership as fertile soil for leaders to grow. So a need for leadership is a good thing. It provides opportunity for leaders to be raised up by God and for us to recognize their calling. Present problems often reveal potential church leaders. So I'm okay with problems. That's why I want to hear about them. Because God's working through problems. Amen? Okay, last verse. Verse 7. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Let's just stop there, just for one second, and we'll look at that last part. The word of God spread, and the church in Jerusalem continued to grow rapidly. The word of God spread because there were more leaders to spread the word. The apostles were able to pray for the church and teach and preach the word of God. The additional leaders were all able to teach and preach the word of God as well. And so the Lord clearly used a problem in the church to raise up more leaders to spread his word. Good, right? Good thing. Listen, remember this, God's purpose is to reach people. Amen? His purpose is to reach people with his word. Not your words, his word. So are you more concerned with reaching people or with people being reached? And that's why we need to get out of the way sometimes. A leader who recognizes his or her limits will allow others to realize their full potential. 
So the number of disciples increased rapidly because there were more disciples making disciples, as it should be. The disciples understood their calling to make disciples, not just converts. Disciples follow Jesus. Converts believe in Jesus. Convert is step one. Disciple is step two. Leader is step three, and that's a servant leader. It's not just about numbers of people in a church. It's about making disciples in a church. And Jesus' disciples were able to change the world around them. It's disciples we're called to make, not converts. Unfortunately, 10 out of 12 converts simply change their mind. They don't change the world around them. So the Lord clearly used this problem in the church to make more disciples in the church. But then we learn something really fascinating. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith and convinced of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Now I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I guess Anthony's coming up to close us out. And we're going to receive communion. So the word of God spread, it says, but it says this, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Come on in, guys. Nice and quietly. Thank you. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that important? Brothers and sisters, the temple priests and the Sadducees were the political establishment in Jerusalem. We talked about them last week. These were the men directly responsible for handing Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Brothers and sisters, remember the priests and what they believed. They were Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. And now they believe in the risen Christ. These priests who had persecuted the apostles now joined the church in Jerusalem. Listen, an open-minded person will certainly be willing to reconsider their position. They were open-minded. And if convinced of his or her error, your strongest opponent will become your most ardent supporter. This is why we're called to preach the gospel in love. One last thing. These priests were extremely capable leaders. They were trained administrators. They were respected by the Jewish people. They were exactly what this growing church needed. Trained leadership who joined the church. The Lord clearly used these converted priests to provide even more leaders in the church. Brothers and sisters, I believe God wants to provide more servant leaders in our church. Your homework? Pray about how he's calling you to serve. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this wonderful time together. Now, as we receive communion and go from this place and close with this last song, Lord, may we honor you in and through our lives as you work to bring about your kingdom, reaching people with the gospel, the truth that you came, died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and ever lived to make intercession on our behalf and promised to come again to judge the living and the dead. Lord God, this truth, if we put our faith in it, we're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God the Father raised him from the dead, we're saved. So if there's any here today that need to make that confession of faith, make it now. We now look to the communion table. We recognize this table is for those that have made that confession of faith. So Lord, as we receive communion, may we remember you and honor you and give our hearts afresh and anew to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.